0: I love watching those super slow-speed replays of athletic motion that they can capture with the high-speed cameras these days, whether it's swimmers taking off from the block of an Olympic race or a keeper diving and twisting to save a shot on goal. One of the best is the baseball swing, right? Just that, that, beautiful, that beautiful movement of a, of a great baseball swing. Hitting a ball with a round bat is considered one of the most difficult skills in sport, according to researchers. From stance to contact to follow through, there's an incredible amount of motion as muscle groups from the feet and legs up through the abdominals into the shoulders, arm and neck all do their part, some turning one way, some turning another, all together an amazing graceful movement with singular purpose." Now, everybody's stance and swing is just a little bit different. Every pitch is just a little bit different, of course, but each member of the team is on the same side, part of the same effort, and gets a chance to contribute toward the common victory. In our passage tonight, we see a lot of motion as Paul and his gang of eight move through various cities on their way toward Jerusalem. As they go, we're able to see the beautiful, grace-filled motion of Christian ministry, with many different things happening, but happening harmoniously and effectively. Looking at these verses, we can highlight some principles and characteristics of doing God's work or simply just living the Christian life in such a way that God is glorified, that others are strengthened, and in a way that keeps us in sort of spiritual scoring position. And so as we begin, Paul is headed out of the city of Ephesus, and we start in verse two. There we read this. And when Paul had passed through those areas of Macedonia and offered them many words of encouragement, he came to Greece and stayed three months. Throughout this whole section, a general characteristic of Christian ministry or just the Christian life is that it is full of activity. Now, that's not to suggest that as Christians, we should just be busy for being busy's sake. As we've seen many times in these 20 chapters so far, Uh, There are very specific things that God, the Holy Spirit, wants to lead you in individually and to simply do other things just to do them or to do a bunch of other stuff in the name of Jesus that he didn't ask you to do. Well, that's actually detrimental to your spiritual development, uh, and that's not a good thing at all. But there's no denying that for all the disciples that we're reading about in this book, the Christian life is a life of activity, a life of active service to the Lord. Now, some stay local, some travel out, some are speaking for God, some are sowing for God, but uh, the consistent theme is that everyone is engaged, serving the Lord actively. We also see here, and later in verse 12, that Christian activity is characterized by what is called encouragement. Now, encouragement in the Bible isn't just flattery or blind optimism. It's not telling that person uh, on the early American Idol episodes that you're a great singer when they're not, right? <laughs> and we've all, I'm sure, given that kind of encouragement to someone who we probably shouldn't have, but we didn't wanna be the one to break it to them that they're the worst person we've ever heard, right? I think someone else will do that. Simon Cowell will do that job for me when that show was on. But that's not what encouragement is in the Bible. In the Bible, it means to help, exhort, and comfort. Now, Paul was going around to these different cities and speaking urgently to these young Christians, some of whom were going to go through very difficult times, deadly times. But though the message was urgent, it wasn't meant to weigh them down as if it was a burden. Christian ministry is encouraging because its aim is always to build up others, right? It's always to take burdens off of people. It's always to strengthen them and build them up and and support them. That's what Christian encouragement is about. Even when Paul had to go and deal with serious issues in, say, Corinth, right? They had a lot of stuff that they were biffing it on, and Paul had to go and bring a bunch of correction, severe exhortation to them. But even then, if he was in Corinth, or writing to them, speaking to them, his goal wasn't to tear down what had been built there, but rather to strengthen them in the truth and in the spirit. Maybe at your house, you look up on You know, uh, some of the sections of your roof, and maybe you're growing a little bit of moss up there, or you know, maybe you're looking at some of the panels there on your house and there's some dry rot. Well, you don't start taking a sledgehammer to load bearing walls and saying, This will teach my roof to have moss on it. You think, okay, well, we need to address this leak in the roof, or we need to address this one board. We can do that. Let's take that rotting part out and reintegrate a good, healthy, strong board in there, right? That's biblical encouragement. The rebuilding, the building up, and the supporting of the spiritual structure, as it were. Our messaging, our many words, should be the same. And so the question is what are my words building? If I have to give a correction to a fellow believer, am I doing so with the intention of building them back up or am I just hurling words at them, wanting them to feel stung, like tossing a brick through a window, right? the, you know, if I'm gonna give a sermon online, and I don't mean in this sense, I mean if I'm gonna get on my computer and start typing something out on my social media page and, and, hey, that's a sermon. If you're gonna preach to somebody, preach into the void about whatever you're really worked up about, what are those many words doing? Uh, When I speak to non-believers, specifically or just in the abstract, what's my goal? In Acts, we see that the Christian goal in those cases was that they would believe and be saved. That's always the goal, right? No matter who they were talking to, if they were talking to, you know, demons-possessed people or governors of islands or whatever, the goal was always, hey, you need to believe and be saved. The words flowed on a river of compassion and grace out of the disciples, not anger and venom. Now, before we move on, Paul was giving many words of encouragement to these believers But it was during a backdrop of unrest and potential for very real persecution. Everywhere Paul went, there was persecution. And when Paul would leave a city, often after some kind of a riot or a mob forming or violence against him, we realized that he would leave a city with Christians left behind. And oftentimes, as we've seen in some of these passages, these angry people who were enemies of the gospel... They wanted Paul, but if they couldn't find Paul, they'd take whoever they could get, right? There was that time when he was in Ephesus and they looked for Paul, couldn't find him. Okay, let's find the next two Christians we can find. Drag them out. We'll mess them up a little bit. And so Paul is giving encouragement, uh, but it's with the backdrop of real severe situations that were going on, potential for very real persecution, These were people who acknowledged that in some cases they may be attacked or imprisoned or killed for coming to church or just for being a Christian. Are you a Christian? Yeah. And suddenly you find yourself being pummeled or brought into the city square, all kinds of stuff happening. And we can be sure that Paul did not say, none of that's going to happen to you hey, why are you limping, Paul? Oh, because I, got, I get beat everywhere I go, and I was stoned over here, and they're lashing me, and I was shipwrecked, and, all these, and I was robbed, and all these different things that he talks about in the epistles. Paul didn't come up to these people in Philippi and say, yeah, they, you know, they flogged me, put me in the dungeon, but none of that's going to happen to you. Just, it's okay. You know, don't worry. Be happy. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he probably said the opposite. He said, hey, I suffered, you're gonna suffer too, prepare yourself for it. And yet, they were comforted and built up. Our words of encouragement to other Christians around us at this point in the time in which we live are usually less about persecution and more about suffering, right? The people you know and are trying to encourage are struggling less with uh, violence and martyrdom, right? And more with things like sickness or loss or fear, uncertainty, those sorts of things, especially illness. Our words of encouragement shouldn't be platitudes that everything is gonna work out. You're going to be healed no matter what, that God is going to heal every affliction in this life. In the end, look, we, we all will be made well in the end. All suffering will be dealt with ultimately. But in this life, lots of Christians are going to suffer and they're going to die, and our encouragement Our support of them needs to be true and honest, otherwise it's no support at all. Otherwise it's just like seeing some black mold and you just put some wallpaper over it without treating it or dealing with it, right? In the end, you know, the person's gonna think, hey, I I don't feel helped at all. All the Christians around me kept telling me that I was going to be healed for sure because that sounded good in their mouths for them to say. We need to be uh, honest with people And biblical in the way that we encourage them. Verse 3 continues The Jews plotted against Paul when he was about to set sail for Syria, so he decided to go back through Macedonia. Flexibility is a characteristic of Christian ministry and just the Christian life in general. We can't always predict what is going to happen or what obstacles we might face. Rather than walk off the field, we just need to adjust our swing, right? When a pitcher throws a curveball to a batter, the batter doesn't throw up his hands and say, I thought you were just gonna throw him right down the middle, nice and slow. What's the problem? Can't we get a T out here? You graduate out of T ball pretty quickly, right? If you wanna be a ball player. And so... Uh, it, that, that's like life, right? That's like the spiritual life too. You're cruising along and you think things are, you know, you know, I feel pretty good. I've had some good at-bats. I made some good contact here. And all of a sudden, some weird slider comes in. Or you're facing off of one of the, is there still that knuckleballer in, in the majors? What's his name? I don't forget. There was like one guy who would throw the knuckleball a few years ago. And nobody can hit a knuckleball. Have you ever seen a knuckleball thrown in slow motion? When it's coming at you, that thing's crazy. It's just jumping all around and, You know, no one says, hey, what gives? Right down the middle, man, that's what we're doing. You I want you to throw it just at like 70 miles an hour so I can just crush this thing. That's not how it works. It seems that Paul had booked the passage on the ship and maybe these guys were planning to take the voyage with him and toss him over the side when they were out in the open sea. We don't know exactly for sure what their conspiracy was, but it's clear that at the last minute, the plan had to change. Paul probably lost his ticket money, at least his deposit, He just had to be flexible and go with it. The Jews' plot backfired, however. Instead of making a beeline for Syria like he wanted to, Paul decides to extend his trip. Okay, well then let's go back through and do a whole bunch more ministry through Macedonia again. It's neat how God can take what the world means for evil and turn it into good. We've seen him do that throughout the scriptures and stories like Joseph. This is another example here. What the world meant for evil, God said, I can actually turn this into a great spiritual uh, time for Paul. Verse four says, he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. We'll see in the next verse that Dr. Luke has joined the group once again as well. So, you have a team of nine guys on their quest to Jerusalem. The fellows in this list were probably selected by their churches to be part of an official delegation that was bringing relief money from the Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem. Paul was going through that region to gather a collection so that he could bring financial aid back to the struggling and suffering church in Jerusalem. That was the major point of their trip together. And it highlights for us that a characteristic of Christian ministry and Christian living is generosity. The Gentile Christians in Corinth, on the human level, had nothing to do with the Gent- Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, right? They don't know those people. They're just some people they once heard about, right? On the human level, yeah, I mean, they're just practically on the other side of the world, in a sense. I've never met those people. I, I, I don't know what's going on in their lives. And yet, as far as these Christians were concerned, they were all family. We have a family member over there who's struggling and doesn't have enough to cover what they need uh, to survive. If Jews were suffering and Gentiles could send relief, of course they would supply what they could. And we learn through the epistles that these Gentile churches really were very generous. In the Bible, we as Christians are commanded to make generosity a priority, We're told that our financial giving to the work of God should be regular and sacrificial and joyful. We should support local ministry and allow the Spirit to also lead us in how we can support wider ministry of evangelism and compassion. What you give and who you give it to should be motivated by love, but it should be happening. And so it's not a question of if, but of which, right? Now, these guys listed here show us a few things about Christian ministry in verse four. First, the fact that they exist and are here joining in on the trip reminds us that the goal of local church ministry isn't to just generate a program. The goal of, of a church existing is to not establish a specific Uh, what we would call ministry, a specific program, a specific activity, and whoever, we just need warm bodies to keep the activity going. That's not really the goal of Christian ministry at all. The goal of the local church is to harvest people, to connect people, to cultivate people, to save them out of the clutches of sin, and then to help them become fruitful members of Christ's body, because if you have a person and they are being taught and developed and built up in their faith, then God says that the Holy Spirit is going to bear fruit in their lives. And then God is going to use them to accomplish work and do things and minister to others. And that's how we see the church growing and spreading in the book of Acts. Paul didn't go to these cities and say, okay, Stuff's kind of struggling in Judea and Jerusalem. So what we need to do is here in Gentile country, let's establish a program that will generate money to feed hungry people in Judea. And now that machine exists in the city of Corinth and we just need warm bodies to work the machine, right? That's not what Paul did. That's not what he did at all. He would go to a city, preach the gospel. Then when and if people got saved, he would establish a local church. And then those people lived out the Christian life and the Christian life, of course, includes activity. Activities like generosity and compassion and all of that. Churches can become project or program oriented sometimes and when they do, it's often at the expense of actual people. You know, the, the, the actual people that God has brought together in the local congregation sort of get ground up in the machinery of the church organization or the church administration or the church, hey, we do this thing and and now you do this thing because you're here and that's what you do. And that's not really what God wants, right? Because the Holy Spirit is powerful enough and smart enough to know how to connect us with people that we need to be connected with and to bear the fruit in our lives that we need in order to accomplish his purposes. When we as a local church get together and decide, well, we have a purpose and we want God to sign off on it, and here's our purpose to establish a specific type of work, we're just going to run into problems. And this is why things like burnout are a part of, you know, Christian culture. I was burned out. Okay, well, I guess we don't really see vines saying, I was burned out. I couldn't do one more grape. One more cluster, that was it, right? You know, we do see burning out are things like engines and machines that don't have oil running through them and and are man-made, right? So, I mean, those are kind of silly examples, but we want to see that Paul was people-oriented here. Uh, And so we need to remember that people, individuals, aren't cogs in a church machine. They're children, they're children of God and the family of God working together to be built as the house of God, the temple of God, right? We also know that these guys had different levels of expertise, different areas of uh, experience, but they were all useful in God's hands. The Lord could bring them all together and work harmoniously, taking curve after curve together. Verse five says, these men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. In five days, we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. Again, we would note their flexibility. Sometimes in the Christian life, we're gonna find ourselves waiting. Sometimes we're moving. Sometimes we get to be reunited and busy with friends in ministry. Sometimes we're gonna be doing stuff with people we don't really know very well who are sort of strangers, but are gonna become brothers and sisters with us. But this group of guys um, worked really well together because they were filled with the Spirit. They shared a common heart of grace, And if you share a love for grace and gracious ministry, then it doesn't really matter if one of you's part Greek and one of you's from Asia, and one of you you has this background and one of you has a different background. Everybody can come together and be friendly and be filled with joy and accomplish common goals together. Verse seven says, "'On the first day of the week we assembled to break bread.'" Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. A characteristic of the Christian life we might draw out here is the camaraderie of believers. Now, we use the word in in churches and in church history, we use the word fellowship a lot. That's not really a term that gets used really anymore in popular culture. It's sort of an antiquated word to be in fellowship with other Christians means to share together with them, sharing one another's sufferings, sharing one another's burdens, sharing one another's blessings. It means we partner together in our faith. It means to be a living family bond with other believers. And that means we embrace one another, warts and all, in love and friendship with Christ as our focus and as our head and as our, as our heart, right? That we're all together together We're connected like a family is connected, each one of us bringing our own particular strengths and shortcomings and peculiarities and all of that, but together we are a loving family with Christ as our head and uh, we're able to grow in that kind of relationship. When it says Paul kept on talking until midnight, we shouldn't assume that he was just monologuing for six hours, although, I mean, it's the Apostle Paul, like looking back, We would say, yeah, we'd love to have six hours of, you know, audio of Paul to listen to, but rather scholars point out that the term used here means he discoursed with them. It was a dialogue. Undoubtedly, he had a lot to say, but they also had lots they were asking. During this section of Acts that we're reading, it's believed that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, Romans, and maybe Galatians as well on this leg of the trip that we're reading about tonight. So clearly, Paul had a lot of doctrine and teaching swirling in his head, but these were young Christians who would have had a ton of questions, and Paul was probably assuming that he would never see these people again because that's what he's going to tell the Ephesian elders in the very next passage. So it's probably his thinking here as well. He's thinking, yeah, I'm never going to see these people again. We better get in uh, you know, a seminar and better get it in while we can. Verse eight says, there were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled. Oil lamps, uh, we got some, we were using some tiki torches the other night, and we got smoke-free fuel. I'm not exactly sure what the marketing team at the tiki torch place think the word smoke-free meant. <laughs> I, called, I called Kelly out, and I said, this was smoke-free, right? He's like, smoke, 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 coming off, but I don't know. Actually, I take it back. It, they said smokeless Fuel. And I realized they must mean smoke less, right? And I thought, what's the other fuel gonna be like? But so looking at that, I realized if you were in a room with even five tiki torches, you got a real problem. There's smoke all over, it's oil, it's gross. Just keep that in mind, okay? So this large upper room was probably filled with smoke. The people had worked probably a full shift all day long. Lots of them were probably slaves, That's gonna give some context to what's coming next. But before moving on, I'd like us to highlight the fact that integrity is also a characteristic of Christian ministry. How can we see that here? We've already seen it earlier in how the funds are being collected. Uh, There was nothing shady going on. You have reputable, honest men keeping an account of the money that is being gathered for the work of God. They conducted themselves on the up and up. But what about here? How can we see the Christians' integrity in this verse? Well, the Christians of that time were sometimes accused of really strange things by the Romans around them and the the Gentiles around them. Uh, It was suggested by some that they might be cannibals because they heard that they talked about eating the body of Jesus and drinking his blood. And so sometimes an accusation would come against them, you Christians, you're cannibals, right? Some accuse the Christians of having weird secret meetings in the dark where they butchered babies and committed acts of incest. There's a really interesting uh, uh, ancient work you can get You can look up online, uh, and it's called like the Octavius Debate, and it was written in the second century, and it's a defense of Christianity using a theoretical debate between uh, a Roman and a Christian where he brings these common accusations. He says, hey, you Christians do this, and then they bring a defense explaining what Christianity is really about. So these were things that were being said about Christians. Now, obviously, none of that was true, But I appreciate that the Christians here are sort of behaving like Daniel did uh, there when he was banned from praying, right? What do we see? Lights on, windows open, gathering together openly. That doesn't mean the Christians are never driven underground, uh, but when possible, as a practice, they were public with their activity. Hey, it's as if they were saying, hey, you guys say we eat human flesh and that we meet in secret in the dark, we wanna show you what the Lord's Supper really is. You can look right in this window. It's very well lit, not very well ventilated, but yes, it's very very well lit, and you can see what we are all about. It's a sad thing when you hear in the news about underhanded, questionable practices happening with God's money or in some ministry or some prominent church. That really shouldn't be true of God's people. We're called to be above reproach. Uh, Let's be above reproach. Verse 9 says, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. Some commentators say that the devil pushed him out the window uh, to distract Paul. Okay, I don't know where they, uh, maybe, I guess. Others, a lot of them rail on poor old Eutychus for not being spiritual enough to stay awake. Come on, come on, man, to quote our maybe president elect. Uh, listen, Eutychus had probably worked as a slave from dawn till dusk. Now he was on hour six of a church meeting. The room is stuffy and hot and filled with oil smoke. The guy's just trying to get a breath of fresh air in the window. He probably gave his real seat to somebody who needed it in the room, and he finally just tanks out. I know I've felt this way before. There have been some times when we were like overseas and we're wiped out from travel and everything that's been going on and we're in a church meeting and like the other guys are like up doing their thing and I'm just about to nod off and I just keep thinking it's gonna look really bad if I'm sleeping while the other guys are like ministering to people. But you get tired, right? And so anyway, let's not criticize this poor guy. Now we can learn something from this example Accidents happen, right? Uh, In this case, everything is gonna work out great right away. Eutychus is gonna be raised from the dead. But listen, sometimes, lots of times, especially in the era in which we live, that's not how it works. God's people get hurt. God's people die. Not because God pushed them out a window or even that the devil pushes them out a window, but because we live in a fallen world. Here at Calvary, we are not Calvinistic when it comes to the issue of salvation, how a person is saved. But you know, if you stop and think about it, a lot of Christians in general sort of become Calvinists when it comes to things that happen in life. You know, that everything happens meticulously because God willed that to happen on purpose to you. And listen, sometimes calamities happen to God's people, not so that God can work a miracle because he doesn't, and not because people were so worthy of judgment, but because our world has been infected with sin and death. A couple of quick uh, gospel examples. John the Baptist wasn't beheaded in order for God to do some glorious miracle, right? What was the reason John the Baptist was beheaded? And depending on your stance of theology, you might answer that differently. But when we look at that and we read that and we see what's going on and what happens and and why it happened, he was beheaded because some gross pervert nut job was in charge And he watched his, like, stepdaughter do a striptease, and they got cornered into beheading a righteous man who had been trying to tell him, you need to repent because you're, you know, living in sin with your brother's wife. There was no happy ending to that story, other than the fact that John the Baptist is in heaven, right? But if we come along and say, God did that to John the Baptist to glorify himself, really? Really? So should we like applaud Herod for those choices that he was making? Should we applaud murder? Should we be excited about that? Or Jesus talked about this other situation in the book of Luke. In Luke 13, Jesus references a current event that had happened. This tower in Siloam had fallen and killed a bunch of people, 18 people. And he says outright, he says, do you think that tower fell because those were really bad people and God was just wiping them out? He said, no. No. And, and what he's saying is that people die because we live in a world that is dominated by death. And so, why don't you repent so that you don't die and waste your eternity? And so, you know, obviously these are hard issues. Um, God is absolutely in charge. But I hope that we're really careful assigning blame to God, right? I guess I'm just uncomfortable saying that God forced Herod to do all kinds of weird depraved stuff which led to his murder of the greatest man born of woman and that that was the end. No raising from the dead, no great revival broke out. Nothing, right? I I'm not ready to say, yeah, God did that and we should applaud God for for doing that. We wouldn't applaud a human for doing that. So we wanna be careful about that. Listen, the world has been ruined by sin and God is working a large-scale cosmic plan to redeem. He is pouring out providence all over the world. His will will be done. In the meantime, Sometimes people fall out of windows and let's be careful not to blame God for that. Verse 10 says, but Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him and said, don't be alarmed because he's alive. Some tried to suggest that Eutychus wasn't actually dead. He was dead. A medical doctor pronounced him dead. What we're seeing here is a miracle, but it also serves as a type for us in a few ways, a picture of a spiritual truth that we learn in theology. First of all, this is a type of what God has done for you, but it's also a type of what we can do for one another in the church. Paul, maybe on this very trip, wrote the, uh, his letter to the Galatians, and he said this in that letter. If another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself, right? So we're not blaming Eutychus, but his accident serves as a good object lesson. Eutychus had been overcome slowly by sleep, right? He kind of started nodding off, probably tried to shake it off, but then whatever happened and he fell asleep and as a result, he fell He fell to his doom, fell into ruin and destruction, right? Paul, his loving brother, went down to where he was, gently and compassionately took him up, brought him in his arms back into fellowship with the other Christians. That is a characteristic of Christian ministry. We are to intervene in these situations where people have fallen and been overcome by temptation and do what we can to restore those fallen individuals back to the body. Verse 11, after going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn and then he left and they brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. We might note here that there is a practicality to the Christian life that shouldn't be overlooked. There was food that needed to be prepared, lamps that needed to be filled with oil, chairs to be set out. It wasn't all just emotionalism or individualism. And I do love that after this shocking event, the death of a young man falling from a three-story window, Paul just treats it as an intermission, And he just goes back up. He's like, all right, we're back, we're back. Okay, where was I? And he just, he goes on again, probably for like six more hours. Uh, Sometimes if we're not careful, it's easy to start becoming superstitious about things. God does lead in subtle ways sometimes, but this accident of Eutychus wasn't a sign that Paul should stop talking. It's a sign, you should better stop, Right? Uh, I was driving somewhere the other day and just as I got on the freeway, there was this big truck like rambling down and this big cardboard box just flew out of the bed. It was like full of leaves, I hope. And like just bam, like hit my car and I dragged it for a while. And listen, that's not a sign that I should have turned back home. And we want to be careful to not become sort of superstitious in our Christianity about that and trying to, you know, see everything as a sign. If the Lord is directing you, he knows how to do so clearly and and we see ways that he does so. And it's not by, you know, throwing chicken bones on the ground and seeing what, what the bones tell us. Passage closes with a quick trip itinerary. Verse 13, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul on board because these were his instructions since he himself was going by land. When he met at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, sailing from there. The next day, we arrived off Chios. The following day, we crossed over to Samos. And the day after, we came to Miletus. One characteristic we might pull out here is that the Christian life is one of endurance. Whether you were the guys on the boat or Paul who had to walk 20 miles to the next town, it was quite an effort. Inning after inning, pitches kept coming, right? Sometimes straight down the middle, sometimes crazy curveballs high and inside. But we see the Christians here in motion. They're full of grace, sometimes being brushed back, sometimes hitting a home run, raising people from the dead, but consistently accomplishing great things with the Lord. And that's one of the great things about this book. It shows that no Christian is meant to be a lifeless drone or cog in some rigid operation. Paul on this leg of the trip would write Romans and explain that we are all various parts of the same one body with various abilities and tasks, all necessary, all significant. Using the baseball analogy, you might be at bat or you might be on deck, but everyone is a part of the action. It's not like football where one guy throws the ball. Hey, we're all going up to bat, every single one of us is going up to bat. And uh, though we can't predict each pitch that we're gonna be thrown at us, we may even get beamed by a ball or two, we can continue what was started in the book of Acts, we're part of this lineup. As we too engage in the Christian life and take our swings, we can be taught, we can be teaching, we see that in this passage, we can be generous and practical, we see that, we can be active and flexible, We can live with endurance and camaraderie with our teammates, encouraging them, showing grace and compassion. These are the motions of the Christian life. We are the ones at bat at this day and age. God has called us out onto the field and that is an exciting thought.